Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Dying Time is here. That's right, we're talking A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from the popsicle version of 1428 Elm Street. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. Now, we're going to unpack all the gory details of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, in the hopes that a unfortunate um, mental ward patient's death is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at their expense. And as always, there is only one person that I trust that when I need to know how to stop a serial killer sleep demon, she gets straight to the fucking point already. The one, the only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? I, I'm back from the, the warp I disappeared into the halfway through our last episode. I, I've, <laughs> I've just been killing time. I, I I emerged the same age and everybody around me is 50 years older. So that, that's been a little hard to process, but <laughs> you, you know how it be sometimes. Well, that thing, sort of thing is going around from what I hear. Uh, but I'm so glad to have you back, even if you are in some sort of withered, desiccated state. I, I yeah, I've, I've never looked better, honestly. Oh, there you go. Well, it, it'll do things for you. That's good to know. But Gina, uh, I don't want to alarm you right now, but we are not alone. That's right. We have a very special guest. You may have read his stuff on DailyDead.com or Rude Morgue, or you may have heard him on the Corpse Club podcast. He is the one, the only Brian Christopher. How are you doing, Brian? I am doing well. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm excellent. I'm so glad that you are here. It's been a long time coming. Uh, you've been a, a faithful voice in the Twitterverse of our show. You've you've helped carry our name far and wide, and we greatly appreciate it. I, I think that's a very uh, kind of, uh, what's the, the word I'm looking for? Diplomatic way of saying I essentially invited myself onto this podcast. So uh, I do appreciate you having me on, uh, Gina as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to talking Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Well, it's not like you aren't an authority on the subject. You are a man who writes about horror in various uh, ways and forms. W- what was your first introduction to the Nightmare on Elm Street series. It's one of those series that is so ingrained in my consciousness that it's hard to, like, I couldn't tell you the exact moment, but I do have to think it's this one. It's Dream Warriors, just because those are the earliest memories I have of the Nightmare series. So, you know, other people talk about, they remember the slumber party or the first time they, they got it because they snuck it in when their parents weren't home. My mom was so into horror movies that it was it replaced bedtime stories for me so take of that what you will um but i I think of this series this was this was one of the ones that uh, is the the earliest memory for me it does seem to resonate with a lot of people i think because it focuses on the most vulnerable of all the teens that we've met so far uh people can see themselves it's rather empowering um, I certainly picked up that vibe from a lot of people that I've asked why Dream Warriors is their jam. But that being said, did it hold up for you on this particular viewing? It did. 
in a way that it actually came up from the last time I watched it, where um, probably about last year, for whatever reason, I put it on. For whatever reason, it just didn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but watching it again this time around, um, I, I remembered a lot of what I loved about it. Uh, I, I think the one thing that I remember not loving about it last time or this time is the uh, the soundtrack really isn't as good, anywhere nearly as good as the original one. Uh, that is a an understatement. Um, <laughs> we we discussed this on the last episode, but Angelo Badalamente's score here is basically first draft. It sounds like he's plinking along on a Casio as the film plays, and they're like, "Do you want a second take?" He's like, eh, "I'm good." It's not his finest hour. <laughs> yeah, this is like it's it's the one where it's like you know this is the the working title or the working draft will we'll get the timing down and then we'll put something in. And then they just forgot to come back around to it. <laughs> well, I asked you a question that I'd asked our previous guest and Gina as well, um, before you entered into it. And this was before our last episode, uh, you know, launched. So I'm hoping that, that you didn't, uh, crib the answer, but previous to your watch, I asked, who do you think, is the protagonist of this particular film. And you responded with Kristen. And so upon this rewatch, did that prognostication still hold true? I, I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. Um, we, it could be Kristen. It could be Nancy. It could be Neil. I, I know you don't like the idea of, you know, the unflavored bowl of oatmeal being the lead character <laughs> in the movie. But the movie spends equal time with quite a few people and gives them scenes where they're by themselves. And uh, I mean, I would make an argument and it it might be a a little off kilter, but this is almost a really good ensemble movie. I think that's what we're coming down to is that it might be an ensemble movie. And what my main problem is besides the lump of clay uh, given a haircut called Craig Wasson's uh, presence in the film is that his character gets to be the one who discovers everything and everything has to pass his metric of believability. And that's where I feel like this could be, could have been worked out better. Yeah. I, I, they, they, it's, it's like he, they needed him to explain to the audience what's going on when the audience should already know what's going on. Because I don't know, I guess, you know, a fair amount of people came into the movie not having seen even the first one but i would think that you would have a general idea that you know okay this isn't something they're just imagining but it's it's sort of like he he is you know doctor expository you know they 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 just they just need you know he has he exists solely to have everything explained to him to catch up the audience who may not be familiar with the storyline already and i just i just disagree with him being the person who gets the backstory who who get, receives all the ghostly information and he he tends not to do a whole hell of a lot with it and that's my big gripe that if he's going to participate along this level i feel like this would have been better if he were a constant doubting thomas and nancy would have had to remain it would have been kicked out of the dream the place where she was a somewhat expert in it and she would have had to fight Freddie in the real world as a rematch of the first film. And Kristen now taking center stage in the dream world as the leader of that group 
would then have to make the decisions inside of the dream world to fight Freddy. And it could have been a two-hander. And this guy could have like sat off to the side. He, he would have been at, <laughs> like, like got, he would have been his like his you know, single dad encounter meeting or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he there there could have been better uses for it. I just don't feel like he's the one who should get the denouement at the end of this and Nancy bites it in a dream. I just I I I feel like it's a more resounding finish. Like this is a solid triple for me that would have been an unquestionable home run if it had structured that story a little bit better but we have to deal with the film that we have not the film that we want that's right internet i'm not starting a petition where we're stuck with the tweed wonder his royal dullness (laughs) (laughs) oh my god he's barely functioning i mean he's breathing because i can see his chest move and he talks Um, but let's, let's get into it then. Uh, before we go any further, we have to discuss it. Who is still left alive at this point in the movie? And the answer is almost everyone, except for Philip and, uh, Freddie and, uh, ghost nun. I guess there's a fair amount of people who are dead and two of them are still walking around. Anyways, let's go through them one by one. First, we have Kristen. A character without a waist, as we only see her in two outfits, a pajama tunic and grandpa pants. I assume she has a pelvis, but I don't need to see direct evidence of this. But I would like a defined waist for her. I feel she deserves it. Next, (laughs) we have Nancy, our returning champion. She's a dame like any other, except for her hair. Waves like the ocean and a siren call from the sea. Uh, Then we have Will, or as I like to refer to him, Weenie Prime. Then there's Jennifer, a deluded person who acts so out of touch with reality that she she may be a secret cartoon like the judge from Roger Rabbit. Spoiler alert for Roger Rabbit. It's Uh, it's only been 35 years. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, it's a spoiler culture. Anyways, we also have Joey, better known as the teardrop babyface killer. And then there's Taryn. She's beautiful and bad and breaking when she says that line. We can give her like a, a... Two takes, maybe even three. We don't have to take the first one where the ridiculousness of that line makes her crack up in the middle of saying it. This is not the Carol Burnett show. (laughs) Also, we have Kincaid. And I learned a little tidbit uh, from Amazon, as I want to do, that when he, uh, when the actor who portrayed this role uh, went into audition, it uh, pretty much came down to him walking into the room and yelling, fuck you, motherfucker. And he was cast right there. <laughs> and that's, that's Ken Sagos, Patrick. Credit where credit is due. Yes. And he does an excellent job here. Uh, he gets short shrift in the next film, but we'll save that for that film. Uh, we also have Dr. Sims. She's a medical professional who believes a collective dream about a child killer is actually masking the guilt of jerking off. <laughs> and I don't think she understands how dreams or jerking off works. <laughs> I, I need to read her, her grad school paper on this because that's a, that's a puzzling correlation. 
we're in a safe space here that is going to go out to all your listeners. I've done my fair share of masturbating and I've done my what? fair share. Oh, yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> I, I know. I know. Uh, I hope you were sitting down. Um, and like any good true-blooded American, I've done my fair share of feeling bad about it afterwards, but never did that manifest itself as a dream so terrible that I died in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, like, aren't they, like, kind of, res- you know, repressed sexuality dreams, like, you know, hot dogs chasing donuts through tunnels and stuff like that, or, or <laughs> you know, oil derricks exploding, you know, someone, you know, putting a basketball through a hoop. Yeah, basically, every, basically everything that happened during the 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 love scene, the naked gun. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is the only uh, sex metaphor that I will accept. Uh, anything that can be explained by uh, queuing back to a silent movie where a guy falls through multiple uh, window awnings. That's that's how <laughs> I view sex because I'm a red blooded American. Uh, and then, of course, we have to round it out with Craig. My face just does this. Wasson. <laughs> and Dr. Neil fucking something or other. We just refer to him as Craig Wasson. I, once again, would like to apologize to Mr. Wasson. I'm sure he is a nice man who's done many good things. This does not happen to be one of them. And I get to talk about it. Sorry, dude. He's gotten his PhD in bland and his minor in boring. <laughs> oh boy, he does not light up the screen. In fact, it's a miracle that light refracts off of him at all to be captured on a 24 frames per minute image to give the illusion of movement. And yet here we are. And so let us re-enter the action inside the group therapy room where it must have also housed Cheech and Chong because it is smoky as Fuck in there, y'all. Oh yeah, everybody is smoking. Like the staff is smoking. Um, in in the scene right before Jennifer is killed, she just finds a pack of pack of matches just laying on the ground <laughs> in the psychiatric hospital. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure the one orderly is Andrew Dice Clay's stunt double, so I think he has to smoke a lot just in his contract. Uh, yes, he does a lot with a little, and by a little, I mean the smoke that keeps traversing between his mouth and his nose. <laughs> he learned this trick. Motherfucker, I'm going to show you this trick on camera. That's, um, how, that's how he got his, that, that's how he won his audition. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and but then, we will and then they said, you know, I could, I could incorporate a few other things. Nope, smoke trick, that's it. <laughs> no, that's your character. Smoke, smoky trick, make smoke trick. That's you, dude. <laughs> Uh, so Dr. Sims, <laughs> in her wisdom, chalks Philip's death uh, in the previous episode up to a, quote, sleepwalking accident. But that kind of negates the fact that he walked right out of her locked ward. No one in the upper echelons here seems to take the least a bit of onus or responsibility for letting a dude you knew walked around sleepwalking and let him walk the straight the fuck through a door. Well, he I walked mean, through a door, y'all. Well, as, as we know, the, the, you know, the policing skills in, in the area are, are not very, they're not very uh, uh, um, efficient. So mm. I, I'm pretty sure that they don't worry much about how they're explaining how these kids are getting killed. Cause I, I actually did note that about Jennifer's death in that, her parents are going to ask questions. 
How, yes. are, they go- how are they going to explain that? She's oh, I, do- I don't know. Or she was. <laughs> Is she fuck? Was she fucking Michael Jordan? Did she take a one, two, three step and just she sail across the screen? Launched herself a out of a space t- jam into that fucking television she set. Launched herself out of a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did, did she have an explosive fart? There's a lot of ways to explain her face being buried in a television set. But we never hear any of those explanations, and they're all like, oh, well, what are you going to do? It must be the therapy. That is not an explanation for this. That's not something someone can do on their own, y'all. I would have loved to have seen them do a Mythbusters on that. Not not to see <laughs> that it could actually be done because it can't, but just to see them like get exasperated at all the different ways they'd need to try and put someone's body through a TV and fail spectacularly. <laughs> but we will get into that more when it occurs. But right now, we're still in the middle of our you know group therapy session. And we... We all need to quiet down because into the room walks human toothpaste tube wearing a sports coat named Craig Wasson. And he decides that awareness of Philip, that when when someone says, no, I saw his eyes. He was awake when this happened. He's like, oh, that means he gave up. He gave up on all of us. He, I he, he might be a shitty psychologist. Yeah, you, I was you, thinking the not, same the, thing. That's not the time to 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 you know bring out the tough love. Yeah, no, not when everyone's he, fucking fragile. Even if this whole Freddy Krueger thing was a complete crock of shit, you don't tell a group of of suicidal teenagers that the kid who just committed suicide was cowardly and just quit on the whole group. I was gonna say, I, I, uh, you don't say the yeah. He basically didn't give a shit about you. He crumpled up his friendship with you and pissed on it and then take a, took a fly leap off of a tower while all of you watched. Uh, and I don't believe any of your perceptions, even though you all witnessed it together. If, I mean, if he could Jesus have been Christ. giving you the finger on his way down, he would have. <laughs> if only his tendons weren't so messed up for some reason that I really can't explain. We, we just don't know how his, you know, he, there was a sleepwalking asset that caused all the tendons in his arms to come out of his body. <laughs> this is like oh. hot fuzz levels of denial. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, at least hot fuzz has the uh, tenacity to give me an explanation for all those fucking deaths. And here, not so much. It's because they masturbated too hard that Philip decided to take a long walk off a short bell tower. And I know that uh, we talked a bit about uh, this on the previous episode, but um, I know that, uh, that Brian, you, you had a little bit more to say uh, to eulogize our, the much missed Philip uh, from this movie. Yeah. And part of it might just be a little bit of nostalgia because I also know him as uh, Eyeball Chambers from Stand By Me. But uh, I just feel like Philip was one of the few characters who had a level of self-awareness and maturity that even for a series as great as Nightmare on Elm Street, no one else seems to have. So he's the one who brings up, you know, we're making maximum effort with minimal progress. Like he, he gets how none of this adds up. Like he's actually a stand in for the audience. And it's just a shame that like they had a really interesting character there. I just wish they hadn't killed him off first. 
Yeah, I think that, well, that's the danger uh, with this type of movie. And we've seen it before in, in other franchises and other films. You have this standout character and you want, I would assume the, the, the filmmakers of all stripes would want every character to be a standout. And there's quite a few in here. But Philip is kind of eliminated because he's a bit too smart. And I think that's a cop out. It's nice when you can still have somebody stay in tune with the audience's questions throughout a movie. I know that eventually he'll be dispatched. He's probably not the final girl, as it were. But that doesn't mean that you need to eliminate him so that fucking Joey can stick around. For Christ's sakes, Joey. Joey <laughs> lives through this movie. Teardrop killer, Joey. Well, I'll I'll do you one better because I have a question for Patrick and Gina. If Patricia Arquette was not cast as Kristen, is Kristen at all a memorable character in this series? And well, she, she she screams like the Dickens. Whether or not her her I don't know that she has a character beyond Patricia Arquette occupying the space denoted for Kristen. She's she obviously has movie star charisma and that's why we we know her that's why we that's why we notice Larry Fishburne who's condemned to walk around and you know occasionally lamenting uh hippies uh when he should be in Craig Wasson's role because they have movie star charisma yeah she's probably not standout material on on the page but then again, that's why you you go out and you try to cast the best actor that you can because they inhibit it and they give everything a glow up. Yeah, and, and that was something that I noticed, I think, in the last one that kind of bumped this one down for me a little bit. And again, it's since come back up. But of the three kind of big characters of this series, Nancy, Kristen, and Alice, um, I, I honestly think that if, if not for Patricia Arquette, uh, Kristen is the least interesting, like you said, on the page. Like Nancy gets a great arc over two movies. Alice gets a great arc uh, at the very least over four. Um, I haven't seen five in such a long time that I really can't speak intelligently to that other than knowing that other people have said it's not great. Um, But, you know, Kristen is just in this one, she's more of a plot device. She's the one who brings everybody into the dreams with the on that. It's just kind of what Patricia Arquette brings to it. And it kind of goes back to being Nancy's movie. Yeah. But then again, I think we're, we're caught in a vicious cycle here because if it's truly an ensemble film, then you, mm-hmm. you do the best with the, the space that you're given. And once again, I, I think that's where Patricia Arquette shines as opposed to uh, some of some of the other uh, people who will not be named Craig Watson. <laughs> Anyways, not to bang this drum again as we move on just a little bit, but this is where the movie has a plot versus character problem because it relies on Craig Watson to be this tipping point for everything. And Nancy never gets to really push, defend, or campaign for her dream theories. It's just something that everyone ignores, even though it was brought up. It's a conven- it's a conveyance 
for her to be in the film, but she never, outside of within the small group, like she never defends herself to Dr. Sims. She never gets to defend herself against the head administrator, whoever the fuck that guy is. I, I don't I don't understand why everyone, as soon as she's brought in as the chain dream expert, and she goes, it might be chain dreams. They're like, fuck you, fuck <laughs> dreams, fuck nightmares. This whole thing needs to be shut down. It's like they were waiting for an excuse and they're making her that, but they never say it out loud. And I I just wish they would pull that thread through. It's just one thing that I wish was there. And it does seem like that's, it is going with the themes of Nightmare on Elm Street of the kids versus the adults. And I think that they had to, they they seem to have just automatically put her into that role of like she's not one of the kids, but now she is kind of one of the kids because no one believes her for the exact thing that she was brought in to be believed about. Right. Um, it's a bit of a, a Ripley from Aliens where uh, Ripley is brought on because she's the one person who has expertise with the xenomorph and she tells everybody if you send people to that planet they're gonna find this fucking thing and it's going to eat them and it's gonna take over the universe and like (laughs) pat on the shoulder you go load some things in that loader and then when they get to that planet she's like hey everybody these aliens are terrible they have acid for blood and they're like okay i carry a gun and then aliens rip through every fucking person in the movie and i think there's a bit of well, they're walking the same sort of tightrope, uh, I suppose, because they basically came out at the same time. Yeah, um, it's it, it's definitely why bring that person in if you're just going to then shit all over every idea they have. But um, I, I think it goes back to the idea, like you said, it's it's more of a moving the plot and the themes along as opposed to something that necessarily makes sense kind of in a literal fashion in that situation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I well, guess because of uh, part two, they they felt that you know, you know, in case you missed it or in case you've forgotten, we're just going to reestablish the entire plot again. I I think that has a lot to do with it. I I I also felt like they were trying to right the ship for whatever reason. They're like, no, 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 no. This thing has more to do with dreams. Like, let's get back into the dream thing. Um. Which I understand. Also, I learned uh, it, during the sequence that it has been six years uh, since uh, her last encounter with Freddy. So that would put her around 24, 25, depending on how old she was in the original movie. I think so she was 16. So I think she's only like 22 here. Oh, good Lord. Just her, well, her, she's kind of got, she's kind of got a little bit of the, uh, the, the middle-aged mom aesthetic going on. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they're, they're trying to age her up, I suppose. Uh, when you got that white streak, you got to use it. When you got that white streak, you got to use it. You got to incorporate, oh, you know, she's basically building a whole wardrobe around uh, the the middle age indication from the white streak. And so when things break down, <laughs> once, once Kincaid basically tells them, fuck off, I'm not going to sleep, y'all. And he keeps that promise. Spoiler alert. Um, Sims basically shuts down group for the day and walks out and says, this is crazy. Y'all are crazy. Uh, and then, uh, in a fit of peak, 
Uh, Craig Wasson decides this is the best moment to tell his uh, superior officer, as it were, oh, I'm going to prescribe this drug and this uh, dream inhibited in hip oh, fuck this dream inhibiting drug to uh, all of these mental patients. And she's like, the fuck you are. And he's like, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to quit. And she's like, okay, buddy, it's on you. Once again, she never takes responsibility for shit. Can I, can I just say, can I just say that I, I wish there was a real medication other than you know, heavily drinking that, that you made it, <laughs> made it so you did not have any dreams. God, yeah. I would be a, I would be a tremendously happier, better rested person if such a if such a, a medication actually existed. Give me hypnosil. Get to work on that Pfizer. I will give you money. Um, there's a, a bit of wiki time uh, wombly jumbly going on here because he basically denotes, I'm going to do this. Nancy says, do you think we can get it? And he goes, I hope so. And then we cut to later that night and we have no idea whether or not anyone has received hypno. So I have to assume they haven't, or maybe they have, I, I don't know. No, they haven't because Jennifer uh, is definitely dreaming. So it's either not working or they didn't get it in time. So there's that. Let's queue up uh, a bunch of potential victims here. We've got Kincaid in the quiet room singing to himself. We've got Jennifer alone in the TV lounge. Wearing some kind of patriotic housecoat is a is an odd outfit. Also, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is one of those moments where I do have to ask: Are they the only patients in the entire hospital? Well, I would assume because they are minors that the ward may be very well locked down from interaction from other wards. But there's no other like it's just them on the ward. Like there's the the five of them, six of them, however many there are. Oh, well, this was this was this mental health care uh... under under Reagan. I mean, it was <laughs> glorious. <laughs> this, I mean, everyone had a room unto themselves when it came to Ronald Reagan's America and mental health. <laughs> Plus, by this point, hasn't Freddie killed like pretty much every kid in the town before the Springwood PD really caught wind of what was going on? Anyway. I don't know if this film makes that point or if that is left for other movies. When it comes to the to the lore, I don't think this is one is necessarily set up as you're the last of the Elm Street. No, they, no, no. They, 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 well, she does say that. She does. She says that exact thing to them. Yeah. When they. Holy when she, shit! When how many last kids of Elm Street are there? When, when Nancy. I, th- I think it's after Jennifer is killed when, uh, you know, when Nancy says, oh, I know who I know who it is. And you know, she tells him and then she goes, no, you're the last of the Elm Street children. No, she definitely says that in this. Speaking oh, of which, God. I'm going to I'm going to hit uh, Gina's button here and just point out the fact that once again, they're going to the legend of six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's the thing of legend. Uh, many people haven't heard about this serial murderer who killed 20 yeah, I, plus children. I, I think on just, a street, yeah, a street <laughs> and every parent on that street took part in, in this mass murder of this this child killer. And then like some sort of HBO series, you know, promised that they would never, ever, ever tell their children about it. <laughs> Why? I'm not sure. I mean, if you got to be like 17 or 18 
And, you know, your dad sits you down one day and says, son, I need to tell you, when you were a little boy, there was a bad man going around murdering children. And your mom and I and a bunch of people got together and killed him. I mean, <laughs> what do you th- I mean, you probably wouldn't believe him. Think about your 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 father for a second. You're like, yeah, I think that's bullshit, dad. But at the same time, wouldn't you be like, that's kind of cool that, that you know, my parents would be all dirty Harry on this child killer. And, and instead, <laughs> it's like this horrifying secret that we we killed the child murderer who got off on a technicality. And <laughs> I mean, I mean, what would be worse that or, well, you know, we just sort of you know kept going about our day, didn't move our children out of the town or anything. No, I mean, uh, you know, win some, lose some in the court system. I think that's the mantra there. And I'm sure everything will work out for the best uh, with this almost self-admitted child murder who every ounce of evidence was tossed out of court in one fell swoop because no evidence was ever located outside of that boiler room. This, it's a metaphor. It's just a movie, everyone. But yeah, if you're, if you're going to, you know, play that tightrope of, you know, who's the real monster, maybe don't use the the dozen or so kid child killer as the you know kind of the the crux of that you know this is kind of a clear cut thing where it's like you know what maybe what they did probably wasn't all that bad considering it would have been interesting and um spoiler because I don't know dick about ma but I'm secretly hoping that the plot behind Ma is that um, the kid's parents all did something to her in high school. And her revenge is once she realizes that all these kids come from the parents who tormented her in high school and did something terrible, that she then takes her revenge because that would be awesome. And I would love to see that movie. They strongly hint at that in the trailers. There's some kind of history with her and the parents. Uh, because you get that that whole meeting of one of the parents going, I don't want you near my kids mm-hmm. and all that shit. But that could also be, I, I could be, that, that could be headcanon that I'm projecting onto it. And if the movie doesn't deliver that, will I be disappointed? Slightly, because I think it's a missed opportunity. But then again, what they have recorded might be infinitely better. I do not know. So there's my talk about a movie that does not come out for several weeks. Another potential <laughs> petition. Yes. Oh, I've got a petition ready. Let's <laughs> let's get that out there. The best use of your time is petitioning people about art you don't like. But is it me that's wrong? No, it's the children. The, the children. <laughs> they're, they're Am I the one who's out of touch? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so uh, we also find Jennifer in the TV room and uh, she is falling asleep watching Critters. And I kind of don't blame her. I'm not a critters guy. I'm fine. If you are, I'm just not a critters person. Are either of you critters fans? I'm indifferent. I remember uh, seeing yeah. it as a kid, but I, I've never felt the need to go back. Exactly. I, I have a vague recollection of, of watching it. It's not something that, you know, I, I wonder if critters holds up. It's not, uh, it just, okay. I mean, hey, listen, everyone's got their something. I'm sure somebody uh, watches what I watch and it's like, fuck, this is ridiculous. But, you know, that's the beauty of having a buffet. Just because I like shrimp and you go for the crab legs, we're not either worse for wear. We just both should not be eating seafood from a buffet. 
the more you know Starfield. Okay. <laughs> or you could go for the one that fell on the floor in the form of munchies. <laughs> oh, my God. I really want to hunt down spookies. Uh, spookies looks like the one that has the coolest uh, creature effects, but I can't find it anymore. And I am fascinated by that VHS cover, um, probably for rather obvious and telling reasons. But I digress. <laughs> Let's talk about other old 80s horror movies that only I and Gina have seen. Uh, we get a brief <laughs> clip of Alone in the Dark and a nut chop <laughs> sequence that I love from the beginning of that movie. Is that the uh, the Jack Pounce Alone in the Dark? Yes, it is. You betcha. Okay. I, I missed that one. I, I missed that being in Nightmare 3, but I've seen that movie and it is, uh, that one's a doozy. Oh, it is something to behold. I think that I, one, I think that one's been on our, our we're going to get to it at some point list for a while. Yeah, it would be nice if everyone can see it. It does come on Turner Classic Movies every once in a while. If you're seeking it out, I would definitely look around Turner Classic Movies because I think they play it two, maybe three times a year in that Friday or Saturday late night spot. Uh, it showed up on Shutter for a hot second and then instantly disappeared. Um, so I don't know what's happening with the rights and New Line or Warner Brothers or whatever the fuck. I but, may have caught it on Amazon Prime. I forget what. It was one of the streaming platforms. I forget if I, I caught it during that brief shutter window or if it was on Amazon Prime for a little while. Yeah, it, it was showed up in both places. I keep fearing that the same thing will happen to Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. But so far, so good. If nothing else, you need to see a continually high and delusional Donald Pleasance. Yeah, smoking up right in front of uh, the crazy guy from the A-team. <laughs> the person who is supposedly in charge of all these mental patients. I, I love that scene where Jack Palance says goodbye for five minutes. Where he just stands in front of a room is like, is the camera running? Great. You could go someplace. I'm just going to say goodbye. Happy. Wait for it. Wait for it. Trails. Pick up the gun. You said that already, Jack. That's a different movie. <laughs> sit down. Go, just go sit down. Have I told you about my one-armed push-ups? <laughs> Jack Pounds, everyone. That is a That's my Jack Pounds impersonation. <laughs> It's not great, and there are better, but that's the one I have. It's the one God gave me. Um, and so from Alone in the Dark, uh, the, uh, the, the television set gets turned to a Dick Cavett-hosted TV show uh, with Zsa Zsa Gabor, whose claimed fame was her sister was on uh, Green Acres, pretty well, much. Well, do you remember from the uh, uh, Never Sleep Again documentary why... They went with Zsa Zsa Gabor. She replaced Sally Kellerman, if I remember uh, correctly. Well, according to uh, Never Sleep Again, Dick Cabot specifically chose her because he hated her so much and thought she was so vapid and just uninteresting. He wanted her to die in the movie. Oh, I want that to be <laughs> absolutely 100% true. What a I, I, wonderful I want that tale. To be, I want that Dick Cabot rumor to be at least as true as the rumor that he and Janis Joplin dated. I, I, I <laughs> want both of these things to be true. 
I am learning all kinds of shit about Dick Cavett tonight. <laughs> oh, man. The dude is wild. God bless. He's still alive. Yes. No. Yeah, yes. It's still kicking. Uh, still out there on the circuit. What is he, like 150? Uh, could be. Uh, but he's outlived us all and probably will because he's part robot. You don't know that. Uh, it's just part of the Lord of being Dick Cavett, uh, the guy who fucked his way through the 60s and 70s. Um, surprisingly. Uh, it, this would have been interesting to have Sally Kellerman. Uh, you might have known her from, of course, the original uh, MASH and Meatballs 2, where she plays a, an imaginary porn star. Uh I don't remember every detail. I, 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 uh, I believe, I believe Patrick, she is the ghost of a porn star. Thank you very Ow! much. <laughs> My apologies. That is so very different. You, you really, really owe our, our audience is something better with your lack of knowledge of the meatballs verse. <laughs> I've actually got a soft spot for uh, <laughs> the original MCU, the meatball cinematic universe. <laughs> I, I've got a soft spot for her from uh, Back to School, which I I can't connect back to the to the uh, Meatball Universe, but is a good movie all by itself. Yes, I just it I is. just picture I just picture her as like the 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 ultimate kind of sketchy single mom in Foxes. The kind of the kind of woman who like brings home her boyfriends and like expects her kids to call him uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's one element of this particular scene that I did not notice until this particular rewatch. And that is that the TV set is actually a bit of a facade. The actual casing around it is built up to be larger and sort of look trashier when there's a very modern, uh, for the times tube TV set that's somewhat smaller inside of it and you really get a very good look at it when the camera dollies in while she's trying to change channels you can see that the tv part is actually smaller than where the speakers are and i um am paying too much fucking attention to these movies (laughs) well i mean if you're going to have robert england have to like curl up in a ball in there waiting to pop out of it you got to have it be a little bit bigger this is very very true i i think they're trying to make it look not as modern, but they probably still needed a newer television to, you know, at the time you had to time out uh, the dot matrix of it all so that it didn't have a a black bar constantly dropping throughout it. Hey, that's what you had to do before uh, digital broadcasting. You're welcome, everyone, for just terribly boring information. You may refer to my supervisor, Craig Wasson, who told me to talk about it. You know what the worst part is? Like, I actually have never minded Craig Wasson's performance in this movie, but I also love a good pile on. So, <laughs> so yeah, he's a uh, flavorless ice flavored popsicle. So. Yeah, he's water flavored uh, for absolutely sure. I, I never he's, really he's bothered non-fat. me until this rewatch. He's non fat vanilla frozen dessert. <laughs> with yeah. with a with a z because they can't even legally actually call it actual dessert <laughs> yeah it can't be yogurt because that would be too spicy <laughs> <laughs> oh poor craig wasson uh so out of this television uh I, well first off let's uh, let's talk about some of the production design in this room because it's fucking awesome 
It's equal parts pink and green, and both of them look like somebody threw up on it. Uh, there's uh, a sense of concavity uh, to the set where it narrows in the back and widens out into the front to make you feel like you're trapped inside of it. There's a lot of thought going on to how this particular setup is made. Uh, secondly, the pacing is excellent. We know that something is off from the second that Jennifer burns herself with a cigarette. It just feels like, oh, this is going in a bad direction. And then it absolutely does in very quick fashion. And finally, the TV Freddy is kind of a genius, even if it does condemn us to years and years of hearing him call everyone bitch from now on. This particular death is fucking awesome. I, I was just going to say, I, I also think the the welcome to primetime bitch gets all of the glory, but I actually much prefer the line that comes right before that. The, this is it, Jennifer, your big break on TV. <laughs> it's so just dripping with sarcasm and contempt. I just absolutely love the way he reads that. And it also hasn't now been like, quoted to death and you know the the way that the welcome to primetime bitch has um i just think that that one uh, it doesn't get the credit it deserves uh yeah i i love everything about the design of it the weirdly the tuetsu iron man uh arms that that lift her up uh how his head emerges from the tv with the rabbit ears attached to them it's and the, how they move around as he's talking, like he's uh, my favorite uh, Martian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and it, then, I, I noticed that the last time too. It was, you know, I remember as a kid just being absolutely like piss your pants terrified of it, but seeing it now, it's like that's funny. It's just like, and I think on purpose funny, you know, you don't have Robert Englund with his head coming out of a TV and antenna coming out of his head. If you're not trying to be at least a little funny with that gag, you're playing on the whole warped dream nightmare aesthetic. And that's one Mm -hmm. of the things that this, this particular movie writes the ship on. We get back to dreams and nightmares Um, I am very much looking forward to four and five and seeing how those dream nightmares stack up as a result. Um, But uh, this is the type of thing that I love this particular franchise for. Uh, Also, the image of Jennifer's head stuck inside this elevated TV monitor is very visceral. And once again, how anyone would explain this to a parent of that that she took a long running jump and you know like she was in the decathlon just managed to perfectly sink her head into the glass of this tv monitor is asinine but you know what you're gonna do uh freddie does not worry about leaving evidence behind he's not like a jason who wants to make everything perfect and just so uh, he just fucks shit up and leaves the remnants for someone else to explain. Oh, my God. Maybe that's like one of his powers. He's got like this weird men in black mind control thing so that when people see that scene, their brain just shuts off and they believe with mountains of evidence indicating otherwise they create some kind of quote unquote rational explanation for why it happened. Like maybe that's one of his powers. Yeah, I think we're going to see this uh, quite a bit going forward is 
is how people discover dead bodies <laughs> after this. Um, I think a lot of the time they just cut to funeral. Speaking of which, cut to Evergreen Cemetery in Riverside, California. Uh, this is a return for Evergreen Cemetery, Cemetery from part one. So the uh, the nightmare universe continues to bring that continuity back. So now, do you many. think they have a Friday the 13th approach? Like, is she buried with Philip? Oh, that would be great. <laughs> if they were buried together. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Can, can we That's talk one about, of the things can, I miss. Can we talk about how Nancy is dressed for this funeral? She she, uh, she looks like a character from a Fellini movie. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like Zorro attending a Broadway play. I mean, all she's missing is like the cigarette on the the, the holder, and just you know talking talking about you know Marcel and his and his ennui when they were on the Riviera last summer. I mean, she just pulls this out of a closet for funerals. This is a wild ass outfit. <laughs> I mean, that hat alone, you have to shop specifically for that hat. She's she, she kind of like um, she she uh, uh, shopped from the house of Delia Dietz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Ooh, it, it is which, so fucking dramatic. Also incorporated Dick Kevin. So we have a connection. <laughs> Done and done. Pulled that thread all the way through. Also, Craig Wasson meets a ghost here, but we'll talk about more of that later. And he's uh, nonplussed about this. Cut to Nancy's candlelit fireplace. Are these two doing it? Who lights candles for dinner after a funeral if blowjobs aren't involved, Gina? <laughs> That was a dick move, Patrick. (laughs) All I'm saying is I don't light candles for after funeral dinners all the time. But if I'm trying to maybe get somebody in bed, I do. But I don't want these two people to do it. I I don't think that they that they are yet. Um, I, I don't think that they managed to. Because, yeah, as we know, what happens to poor Nancy in the end. But, I mean, they have a couple meaningful looks. Certainly when they when they uh, when they separate at the bar, they kind of give each other a little bit of look. I'm like, no, no, don't you kiss. Don't you fucking kiss. <laughs> and they, they heard me. Thank God. So, no, yeah. I mean, I was more boggling. Like, how is she affording this on a graduate student salary? Yeah, I, maybe Joyce had a lot of. I mean, she's, um, she's got a pretty. Insurance. She's got a pretty swank bachelorette pad going on there. <laughs> she does. I mean, unlike Neil, uh, her the entryway to her kitchen doesn't have swinging cowboy doors. Like this is a real place. <laughs> I, I mean, really. I mean, I mean, it is set for romance. I mean, I, I, I would say all she's missing is the Portis head, but Portis head, I don't think, was a thing when this movie was out. No. So maybe she would have I, to. She would have to wait another six years. I, I don't know. Maybe Luther Vandross or something. I don't know. Sade. Thank you. There you <laughs> yes. go. Perfect. I mean, they're eating dinner on the ground at a coffee table. That is not something one does with just a colleague. That I don't even think I've ever done that with friends. That is a romantic move when you're like, the couch is too formal for us. Let's get down on this coffee table's level. Let, let's I think just, this was let, another one where like early drafts had some kind of an actual explicit love story to it. And then I guess they realized that that wasn't a way to go. But again, this is uh, this is a production where we're not doing second takes. So we're sure as shit not doing reshoots. 
Well, you know, they figured the audience had seen Body Double and they would think, yes, we demand, we insist that Craig Watson get another sex scene. Please. We we just, we just this absolutely must happen. And they just, they had to, they, they, for time's sake, they could not do it. Bring back that Watson peen, man. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were, they saw it in Ghost Story. They're like, bring back that green screen matte painting peen. <laughs> Um, you know what the worst thing is? I have seen exactly seven seconds of Ghost Story, and it was that it's scene. It's that scene. <laughs> because someone posted that clip onto Twitter. So it's like, oh, it's Craig Wasson. And there's Craig Wasson's penis. Just flapping in the breeze. <laughs> <laughs> and if uh, I remember correctly, maybe a pencil mustache involved there as well. Well, well the, the if, you, if you thought that you couldn't get enough of his raw animal charisma in this, in Ghost Story, <laughs> brace yourself, put on your hats. He plays I mean, two were, characters in it. Yes. And so, you can tell them apart because of the mustache. So That's isn't that kind of like putting it. a goatee on a bowl of tapioca pudding? It is. <laughs> I mean, he is on screen with with four acting legends, and he is in the movie for sure. <laughs> I've definitely he's, seen he photographic sure is, evidence. He sure is there. Yeah. Uh, shout out to that sad wood wreath wrapped in white ribbon on the wall. And I am not talking about Craig Wasson. I'm talking about the set decoration. <laughs> Can you be uh, sure that wasn't him? Yes. Um, this scene is useless because all it is, is is Neil talking about his feelings. And you're like, you know what? Nancy lived through all her fucking friends dying in high school. Could we talk about that? Why are we constantly worried about Neil? Neil, Neil, Neil. Um, cut back to the group. Uh, slightly less smoky room this time. Nancy reveals to everyone that Freddy's name is Fred Krueger and that he, and what his MO is in terms of dream manipulation. And this does not strike Craig Wasson as odd or revelatory based on his facial movements. He just accepts the information and continues to think about that cornbread he had last night for dinner. It's like he's been told the weather tomorrow will be partly cloudy. There's just nothing happening there. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like, there's a dream demon who's a former serial killer. And if you die in a dream, you die in real life. And he's like, yeah. When's I lunch? What the bus schedule is. <laughs> <laughs> so they decide to do the perfectly rational thing all go to sleep together all at the same time and have Kristen pull them on into the same dream. And of course it works immediately, but the film kind of fools you into thinking it's not happening. And Joey gets lured into the hallway with the promise of fresh bed sheets, uh, only to be seduced by one nurse, Marcy. So, um, I just picture a four-year-old Brian Christopher uh-huh. watching one of probably his earliest horror movies. And this being not only his introduction to like R-rated horror, but also to a nude woman who, who then proceeds to like mutate into a burnt child killer. Um, I, I, I don't want to say it led to therapy, but it, it definitely didn't steer me away from therapy. 
Um, how did the four-year-old you um, think about those super high on the hip panties? <laughs> um, I mean, I was also, it was an era where I was also watching Roadhouse. So I just figured that's where all <laughs> panties sat. I was going to say, that Speaking can't be comfortable of- for nursing all day. Oh, no, no. To walk around, that's the going out panty. That's not a work panty. Also, she's not wearing a bra. I mean, granted, this is the dream version of her, so we really shouldn't cast aspersions. But uh, I think that it's very apt that you bring up Roadhouse because that's another movie that has just criminal uh, hairstyles. The hairstyles in... That film are, they, they cannot even be believed even, even though they are filmed. And Joey's hair isn't so much of a style such as an ongoing criminal enterprise. The flip in front should be a warning to others that he's poisonous. <laughs> that is not a movie hairstyle, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care what era you come from. And I will say at least they got rid of the teardrop tattoo oh that was gone after one scene that it's still extremely puzzling i i blame you for the fact that that will forever gnaw in my brain patrick (laughs) because i never noticed it before and now that's all (laughs) i will ever notice for the rest of my life that in one 17 second scene joey has an eye drop tattoo and will never see that again yeah uh it uh remains a mystery how this debate team gangsta uh, managed to shake somebody in juvie, but what are you going to do? Uh, let's cut back to the the group scene for a second, uh, because here they all slowly begin to realize they're actually in a dream When you, once you start to see those balls float around in 2D animation. Not the film's finest uh, special effects moment, but what are you going to do? It's 1986. Uh, we get a speech from Will, uh, who basically explains how we know we're in a dream, and he says it thus. In my dreams, I can walk. My legs are strong. In my dreams, I am the wizard master. <laughs> and these <laughs> these were words written down and then handed to him and say, please say this when the camera is focused on you. <laughs> and he tried his hardest. Well, I mean, they are asking him to basically put together a sequences of words that basically add up to four plus four equals toilet seat. <laughs> it's like, yeah, my legs work. And I'm also a wizard. (laughs) Now, let me make this ball into butterfly. See? (laughs) Once again, Wasson is inside this collective dream state and is really more, really more, you know, focused on concern trolling Kincaid when he breaks a chair in half. Uh, He's a real drip. It should also be pointed out that he is apparently so bland that he was able to hypnotize himself to sleep. I was thinking that it's like he, yeah, he put himself to sleep again. I, 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 I wish I had that capability. I wouldn't have a, a medicine cabinet full of melatonin and, 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 you know, no dose and sleep dose and other variations of dose. If I could like hypnotize myself, if I could just bore myself to sleep, that was a, again, that would make my, my life so much easier. But Gina, the trade-off for that is that you need to be Craig Wasson. Fuck. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is like the real monkey's paw of this. This is I sold my hair for a comb of it all. Uh, <laughs> uh, we also get Taryn's iconic line of, in my dreams, 
I'm beautiful and bad. And uh, she's either smiling from ear to ear in delight or she's breaking in the middle of it. Either way, it's just kind of fun. It's I just like it. Kind of I mean, it, 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 she, it, she kind of thinking, "Oh, this is so stupid." It, it's cute. I mean, that's the only <laughs> that's, that's the only time these kids get to be happy is when they're in their you know their their dream personas. Again, like I mentioned um, in an earlier episode, you know, most of my more mundane dreams, I'm just like going somewhere and realize I don't have any shoes on. So that would be that would be my my very useful power to to bring to the table in, in fighting a, a an otherworldly child killer. You're just walking around so that your feet touch the earth so that you're connected to it, just like gloriously that one. Like, barefooted, like Chuck in in Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Exactly, goes into a fucking outhouse without shoes on, like a <laughs> goddamn grosso. <laughs> Ugh, what a movie. Um. So back to Teardrop Joey. Nurse Marcy uh, basically piles on top of him, or at least the very far right-hand half of his body. It's almost like there's a contractual level of his body that she's supposed to cover, but no more. Um, it's very odd for, uh, gr- you know, sort of sex grind. Uh, in my dreams, I think this would progress a, lot, a little bit more, but I guess Freddie's just not that into it. And I can't force him. This He's definitely is, not willing to get as much into it as, like, say, the tall man in Phantasm, who <laughs> will have full intercourse with somebody before stabbing them. Yeah, he loves sex. Here's the thing we don't <laughs> talk about, about tall man. Tall man loves sex. Tall man and fucks. Tall man, tall man fucks. fucks. Tall man fucks. Freddy? He's uh he's teasing you all the fucking time. He's just coaxing a boner out of you, and then he's like, nope. Fuck you. Here's my tongue. So (laughs) let's talk about two interesting microtrends that we have now discovered inside of the Nightmare in Elm Street franchise. After three movies, that's when it begins to develop because once is a fluke, twice is, you know, coincidence. Third time, someone's trying to tell you something and we get a couple of them here. The first is Freddy Tongue. He literally la- he gives someone a tongue lashing and and ties Joey to this bed with remnants of his tongue. So Freddy tongue is a real thing in this movie. We're given it in the first movie with I'm your boyfriend now. In the second movie, it's in between Meryl's ample chest as Jesse clings desperately to heterosexuality uh, and uh, fails. Uh, but then gets right back on that horse, that fork, that fuck horse, if you will. And here we get it again as it lashes Joey to the bed. Freddy tongue. We need a hashtag for it. I'm not <laughs> sure what it is, but that's a thing, y'all. <laughs> and it's also really strong and holds up well because something I noticed about in, in this watching, several days go by. Or at least a good day before they go back yeah. in to get Joey. He is still tied above that Temple of Doom fire pit by those tongues. So he's been just like camped out there for a good 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, I guess I guess Freddy Tongue has some sort of pacifying agent where Joey slips into a coma as a result of this. Um, I'm not really sure how that works. 
Um, I don't work in dreams, so maybe some scientist can tell me about it. Uh, I, I, I don't really get it, but that's okay. I don't, I don't have to get everything. The second trend, let's call it the Joyce treatment. We may have our very own extension of hashtag get bunked happening <laughs> in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Instead of being killed through a bed or other solid surface, people merely melt into their beds in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise yeah, and, 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 and mostly and, die. And, and, uh, it's not until the uh not until the next movie, but 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 spoiler, Joey again meets his final demise in a bed. Yes. Yes. While and while also, while being while being cock teased by a naked chick again. <laughs> and also tying back to that deep sense of denial because when his mom sees it, she's freaked out. But no one questions how he managed to somehow phase through, I guess, through osmosis into the waterbed. But I don't want to, that's all, that's where a movie ahead. I don't want to get too far into that. I mean, people in this town are very accepting of bed related phantasm deaths. <laughs> we saw it in the first one. We saw some evidence of bed related hijinks in part two, not as supernatural as this, but holy hell. There's a bed thing happening. The people in Nightmare on Elm Street are getting their own version of bunked, and it's exciting to me. So the group uh, space manages to then transform into a giant, giant boiler room. Uh, various people try to get out, but it's too hot, too hot in there uh, for them to do it. Uh, and then when Dr. Sims walks in, very nonplussed, uh, that there's a bevy of smoke in the room, but I guess they're all used to that because someone's constantly smoking or once again, Cheech and Chong are in the corner. Uh, she finds Joey on the floor and yells out code blue. Um, and then uh, Craig uh, Wasson and Nancy are let go from their jobs because obviously if you hypnotize people into falling asleep and one of them goes into a coma, it's totally your fault somehow. Well, I mean, before we get too into that, I do want to back up just a little bit back to the the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street version of the Star Wars trash compactor. Uh-huh. Did either of you happen to notice that when it was coming in, uh, is it Terror or Terran? The the bad one. Terran. <laughs> yes. Terran. Terran tried to stab the wall with her switchblade. <laughs> I did not like she went that. she went full Sir Lancelot from Holy Grail when he's like attacking the literally attacking the castle. She takes at least two swipes at this wall when it's coming in at her. Yeah, she does stand stand knife already in both hands to stab this red hot iron wall. I I, I mean it's the weapon she has available to her, so there's that. But it also in terms of being a trash compactor, it's very weird that it instead of closing in from either side, it's just sort of bends in <laughs> like you're like you're, you're trying to fold cardboard in half, but you haven't gotten to that crease quite yet. So it's more a concavity uh, than anything else. By the way, I, I like how I managed to reference both Monty Python and Star Wars in a <laughs> horror podcast. So you're all welcome for that. You can check that off your list well if, if you have a bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Craig and Nancy are, are tossed from the department because they talked to kids in a room and they all fell asleep. And that's the golden rule. You can't do that if if you're a doctor, I guess. 
Uh, Craig Wasson takes this news with his usual combination of, I have my white toast dry, thank you, and waiting until the other actor stops speaking to deliver his lines. And this results in him heading out to his car to uh, put all his files away, including one photo (laughs) that I tweeted out earlier. That's him, Philip, and Jennifer, and he's holding on to a juice box. (laughs) And it looks like the most boring fucking picnic that has ever been boring. Well, I think I think Phil, I, I think Philip is is trying to do the whole you know hello hello banana phone thing. It looks yes, like he's kind yes. of go for that thing a little bit, but we miss you, <laughs> Philip. We I'll take any Philip I can get. So hello hello banana phone still pops off the screen. Uh, meanwhile, Craig spies <laughs> Ghost Nun on the top of the bell tower and takes off after her in the most stumbling manner ever committed to film. It's like he's dancing around a landmine of dog poop. Do I need <laughs> to describe Wasson using a rock to open a lock? Now, you pretty much get it. it, it it's, it's just as boring as you might think it is. And then we get a whole lot of ghost nun backstory. How to describe this? Young women should not be working in wards of the criminally insane by their lonesome. I'm just going to come out and say this. This goes for men, women, anyone in between. Uh, literally, that's a buddy system sort of game. Well, isn't that kind of you a, should pair isn't up? Really, though, a, a isn't that really a, a trope in 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 horror movies that goes with that explanation? This is the chronically understaffed hospitals and and psych wards. I, I believe I, I I would like to take you back to the remake of Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. When it appeared that the entire hospital had taken a holiday off. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, and if not, they're just so horned up from it being Christmas that they're very busy boning. I mean, I mean, even even in kind of more, uh, you know, highbrow horror, like like, say, Exorcist 3, like that. I mean, that that whole scene, you know, the, probably the best jump scene in, in horror besides Alien yeah. It, it doesn't work unless uh, it, it, you know, uh, unless the fact that how is this nurse the only staff member just wandering around? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I realize that the tension is someone does come in and then they go out and then she's there by herself. But I mean, I, I don't know if either of you have spent a lot of time in, in hospitals without getting too much of a bummer. I have, and there there are constantly people in them. Always, if there's a if there's a reason why a mass murder has never taken place in a hospital, as, as even <laughs> despite it being a, a very common place in horror movies, it's because there are at least there you know six people to nurses station, people going in and out of the nurses offices. It's just it's it's a very it's one of those horror movie tropes that that has never borne itself out in real life and a real life and it's for dramatic effect but sometimes you, you have to think eh, you know try try something different. <laughs> uh, but we learned from her that uh, it turns out uh, that uh, Freddy Krueger is quote unquote the bastard son of a hundred maniacs as this poor young woman was kidnapped uh, by this ward of criminally insane ne'er-do-wells and repeatedly assaulted over the period of many days over a holiday. And uh, when she was found, she was uh, barely cognizant of what had occurred. And it's really kind of a 
gross and rapey storyline that I don't know if, is this trying to make it so that Freddy's acceptable? Like, it's okay that you like him because... Yeah, no, no I don't. Twenty plus. No, I don't kids, think. I don't but, think he's supposed to be sympathize. It's supposed to make you sympathize with him. I think it's just you know, let's come up. You know, other than you know, having him be born of the devil himself. You know, let's let's come up with the most horrifying backstory we could think of for him. It's also a bit of like a. That's not how reproduction works. No, <laughs> <laughs> all it takes you is can, one, folks. Yeah, all it takes is one maniac. And and there's a bit of kind of a a eugenics thing here like trying to say that because of there was so much crazy that it created just deep in the dna like he was always going to be evil and it's like that's also not how reproduction works <laughs> yeah. yeah well uh, as, as the movies go on they they keep you know fine tuning and retconning and messing around with the 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 freddy you know, background story to to the series detriment I, I i i have found yeah it it does not wear well the more we know about this person i the one thing i truly appreciate about the friday the 13th series is that it takes until part nine before someone's like oh no this family has a long family history i mean look at the the old Voorhees manor with this sex chair and necronomicon like <laughs> uh, this is unnecessary <laughs> Yeah, because it ends up sounding so much like someone just pulled it out of their ass. And it, yeah, sit back. It's time it. for a shave. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also does not help that the lady playing this nun, an actress by the name of Nan Martin, looks like she's reading her lines off of cue cards just over Craig Wasson's shoulder. Um, she cannot. Well, they actually that. probably could have written them directly onto Craig Wasson. That's true. I mean, he's <laughs> right, on his pale his, and flat. right on his forehead. Yeah, I'm, it would not have affected his performance in the least and would have helped her. And I think that's it, it's sad that he could not help out a fellow actor. But, what you know, uh, you know, we all have to do what we do. But that pretty much rounds it up for this section of the movie. Uh, we've reached the one hour mark. And so we must say adieu. But before we go, of course, we have to do a bit of business. And that starts with Choose Your Own Death Venture, uh, a, a brief return of an old favorite. Uh, if you had to die in the manner in which one of the people in this film does, which would you choose and why? Here are your choices. You can have your face thrust into a television set or you can be slashed to death on the set of a uh, television talk show. Um, so, uh, Brian, as our guest, I turn to you first and demand your answer. Oh, well, I think um, if this episode is any indication, you can see that I'm rather vain and uh, narcissistic. So I think the opportunity to be on a talk show for my last minutes would be something I would probably jump at, um, you know, rather than watching TV. So I think I would have to go with uh, getting slashed in the face a la Zaza Gabor. Okay. But as part of that, Dick Cavett is going to make you look like kind of an asshole. Uh, maybe I kind of deserve it. <laughs> There you go. Someone who accepts their fate 100%. I like this. Gina, what say you? Oh, I obviously, even when I, even when I watched this movie the first time around, I, all I could think was, yeah, that's how I would go. 
Is is he facing the television simply because of how much television I watched when I was a teenager? It just it just made sense to me that that was going to be ultimately be my demise. <laughs> I like it. Um, I also have to go with face in the television. It's just too cool, and I would assume that I would bleed out rather quickly if I wasn't already electrocuted. I just think it's a fast and baffling way to go and would leave my family with a great deal of questions about how I was able to do it and all of that. And I mean, what better way could you possibly have uh, to go out? And so there you have it before we go, of course, uh, Brian, uh, where can people find you on these here internets to find out more about what you do? Uh, I am excessively on Twitter uh, at evil Taylor Hicks. Uh, and that's pretty much where you can find uh, uh, what uh, what I've been writing about, either for Daily Dead or for Room Org or uh, just the random shit that pops into my head throughout the day. Excellent. Do it today, people. Uh, Gina, how about yous? Uh, I write about old television and pop culture at my own website, GinaRadcliffe.com. I am also a writer on The Spool. Um, some recent reviews I've done are the, uh, the who gives a shit Ted Bundy movie and Charlie and, and Charlie <laughs> says, which was actually kind of decent, not bad. I'm really already burned out on Charles Manson stuff, but if you must watch one, do tide yourself over until the Quentin Tarantino movie comes out. This is not a bad one. I have to say. And, uh, I, I too am extremely on Twitter under porcelain seven do it today. People will check it out. Of course, uh, if you want to interact with us, there are several ways to do it. Uh, the first being at, on Twitter at Kill by Kill Pod. Uh, join the conversation on our Facebook group or page. That's a great way to interact with us. And of course, um, Instagram at Kill by Kill Podcast. And I've really kept up with the high volume of work that I have going on now. I'm really great at updating Instagram. And by great, I mean terrible. Hey, you know what? You can also do us a solid. You can give us uh, a review on iTunes or wherever you uh, find our podcast. That's a great. It's a great way to help us reach more people. And you'd be doing us a solid like uh, Creepy Kev's Art, uh, who writes great podcasts, hilarious commentary. My favorite kill in the Nightmare slash Freddy franchises is Crispin Glover's character in the final chapter because Jason will always help you find a corkscrew. It's true. He's helpful around a kitchen, especially if you want to get rid of that window. Very helpful. With that, he hates obstructed views. And before uh, we go any further, uh, we did receive an email, Gina, uh, that I wanted to let people know about. We received it from a gentleman by the name of Glenn Davies. Uh, He's out in Scotland, and he managed to find us on Spotify. It's our first Spotify find, at least that we know of. Uh, He searched Friday the 13th music, and he managed to find our podcast. Uh, And he was saying that he loves the show and that he kind of grew up uh, as an 80s, 90s kid, uh, loving all things Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and and Halloween. Uh, And he still has all of the VHS tapes and DVDs. And he's just so happened to come across our podcast there. And now he's hooked. I'm a truck driver and spend long hours driving about the countryside and download a shit ton of your episodes every weekend before I go off to listen to it in the truck. And so far, I followed you through the Friday the 13th 
uh, franchise one through seven and decided to take a break. And now I'm following you on Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that's a coy way of saying I don't want to listen to Jason in Hell. But there's great episodes in Jason in Hell, folks. Uh, <laughs> don't be dismayed by our sour attitude. Uh, there are so many wonderful guests there, especially. Um, and he's now working his way through all of the movies again and says, keep up the great work. Please keep making me laugh. All the best from Bonnie Scotland. So there you go. Uh, thank you, Glenn, uh, for reaching out to us. Uh, I'm so glad we are connected uh, in Scotland and we have one roving trucker out and about <laughs> listening to us rant and rave. Sorry, our, vo- uh, our voice is just carrying over the, o- over the lee. my dulcet tones just echoing uh and so gina before we go uh what's happening on the patreon front we're back baby we have three new patrons all right we have paul we have jen McAllister. we have megan i'm gonna pronounce your last name wrong thewes t-h-e-w-e-s and I also wanted to give a special thanks to Yuha, who was already a patron, but Yuha raised his donation to ten dollars a month. So be more like Yuha. Oh, if you do, if you do that, you you will get a choice. You will get the opportunity to pick a movie for us to well to be put in a drawing to pick a movie for us to review for a Patreon exclusive episode. Uh, that was our last Patreon episode which was Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, a, a occasionally baffling movie that, that we, had, we had a lot of fun talking about. Yes. I mean, if you want to hear us talk on and on and on about a guy fucking uh, a tub of ice with a chainsaw, uh, we do that uh, throughout the, the show <laughs> in a great length. If you want to, you know, you definitely get on board if you want to hear us talking even more off script than we already do on this show. Yes, uh, lots of fun things. And we've got a lot of fun things planned, including next month, The Threat of Motel Hell, one of Gina's absolute favorite films on Earth. And yet another movie with a chainsaw duel in it. We're really ripping up the chainsaws. <laughs> It's going to get even worse with chainsaws if uh, what's happening after this movie comes to fruition. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. That's for a later time. Thank you ever so much to all of our listeners. Uh, No matter how you support, if it's it's just downloading us or, or blasting us on your social media feed or you're a Patreon supporter, we duly appreciate it. We cannot thank you enough. And so until next time, don't worry, folks. The body count will continue. So for myself and Brian and for Gina, bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Kill by Kill is produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. A Nightmare on Elm Street is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill's logos were created by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.